106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. And we're on the air in five, four, three, two, one. Pencil. When peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. We are beginning to be able, cautiously. Welcome to the Here You Are Wasa podcast. I'm your host, Dino. And I'm Eric. And uh, today we've, we've got a special guest. My, my friend Tom Jordan is here. Uh, Tom is in the band 20 Watt Tombstone, and he just got back from tour, right? Yep. So how long were you gone? Uh, just just shy of a month. And so in the how many days off did you have during that time? Um, I believe it was four total, three total. That's a lot of shows. Yeah, when we uh, when we left, we had we had a couple open dates that we ended up filling on tour. So I think when we left, we had five open dates, and once we hit the road, I think we had two or three. Okay. So, How many states is that? that? What's that? How many states does that cover? A month long journey. Um, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan. Um, Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. Um, I think that's about it. I might be forgetting a state or two, but basically down the southeast coast and then kind of back up through through the Midwest, kind of a horseshoe kind of thing. Nice. How long can we maintain, I wonder? How long before one of us starts raving and jabbering at this boy? What will he think then? This same lonely desert was the last known home of the Manson family. Would he make that grim connection when my attorney starts screaming about bats and huge manta rays coming down on the car? If so, well, we'll just have to cut his head off and bury him somewhere. Because it goes without saying that we can't turn him loose. He'd report us at once to some kind of outback Nazi law enforcement agency and they'll run us down like dogs. Jesus, Jesus, did I say say that? Or just think it? Was I talking? Did they hear me? So, so you live up here in Wassa with us. So, uh, I, you know, I, I feel I feel a little bit weird because one, you're my friend, and two, I've written about you a bunch. So, uh, this is, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna stumble through this interview quite a bit. But uh, so so, uh, why do you tour? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I guess for me, what it boils down to is. I've never really been content to just sit at home and do this. I've always kind of felt that um, the job itself kind of kind of works better if you get out and do it on a larger scale. So I've I've always kind of felt like, you know, music and making original music just needs to be something bigger than just playing at home to your friends. Like it, it, you know, it's like selling a product. You, you need to get that product out to a wider audience. And unfortunately with, with music, the only real 100% effective way to do that is to go out and play shows. So I guess that would be the, the simplest explanation for me. 
Eric, if if you if you want to jump in, you go ahead. I will. Okay, good. Thanks. I I didn't want to. I, well, I just sort of. I'm I'm feeling self conscious about monopolizing this shit. But uh, oh. all right. So no, you don't have to. You are the music journalist. Good. So we we lean toward you. All right. So uh, so when when you and I met, we were both working at uh, the Daily Herald, and you had just come up from Milwaukee. You, really, I'd like you to talk about that CD that you handed me. That I still have. Oh, it was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> It was garbage. How would you how would you describe that music, Tom? I don't know. It was just it was I don't know. Garbage would so, be right. So Tom so back then uh Tom gave me this burn C D of I assume it was a demo of some kind, which was sorta of close to I I think Tom was kinda of trying to do a little bit of a of a gothy industrial thing. Almost there's almost yeah, a little bit of a was, dance vibe to it. <laughs> it was it was definitely there was some electronic stuff happening. It was it was around the time that like uh Nine Inch Nails was was big and Marilyn Manson was just kinda starting to blow up and that sort of thing. So there was there was a lot of industrial metal and that kind of thing happening and unfortunately I uh got involved with some guys who wanted to do that. So that's kind of what we did, I guess. Yeah. So if there's ever a VH1 behind the music with you, I've still got that CD. <laughs> okay. Uh-oh. Just, I've still got it. I have the, I have the buggy whip recordings. Oh yeah. It's, it's not, we're going to put away. that CD up on uh, YouTube yeah. after this podcast. <laughs> Boy. The world can hear it. Yeah. <laughs> well, did that band have a name? I don't remember. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, that, you know, it didn't really have a name. Like when I, when I lived in Milwaukee, I was in a band that was basically kind of a punk band and we did a lot of punk covers and some original stuff. We played a lot of black flag, minor threat, uh, Ramones, that sort of thing. And guys from that band sort of drifted over to whatever this other project was. Um, so it, it kind of was one of those things where we had, like three different bands worth of people playing on, you know, an original, you know, concept. And, uh, so it never really got a name, but it never really did anything either. Like we, you know, it was more or less something we tried that we were like, Oh, cool. And then I moved and a couple of the other guys moved and it never really took off. So unfortunately it never got a name. Right. But it's never, it's never going to be forgotten, buddy. <laughs> you're never we're never gonna live that shit down so so that so then you got up here and uh so let's let's talk a little bit about it so uh what what happened next uh well i had a kid and i stopped playing that's that's pretty much what happened um when my son was really little i just i put guitar on the back burner and didn't really didn't really touch it. I mean, I didn't really practice, um, sold off a lot of my gear. And then when he was probably around, I want to say three, four years old, somewhere around there. Um, I started to dabble again cause I had a little more time and then, you know, from there it went to going and seeing more live music at Scott street pub um, and kind of 
getting reinterested, I guess, seeing other bands play it kind of made me miss it a little more. So then, you know, it kind of got rekindled and and from there I started buying gear again and started jamming with other bands, jammed with Howard at Scott Street Pub, jammed with a couple other guys there. And then that kind of just fueled the fire. And then from there, you know, I uh, ended up playing with Buggy Whip for a while till the singer left and then took over with that band doing vocals and guitar, which was really the first time I had done that with a band in a live application. Like I hadn't ever really sang full time and played guitar full time. Like I, I had done mostly guitar, some vocals. Um, so that was really the first time I did both at the same time. So let, let's do, let's, you know, I'm going to bring out some inside information here just cause it's fun for me. So how long were you with Michael Murphy? Oh yeah. Um, I played with Michael probably for about two years. Um, one year at least with the old band with Mickey Larson and Tom Swearingen and Keith Farnham, um, all those dudes. Um, and then after that, I did some some moonlight gigs with with the band, but a lot of a lot of solo shows with him. He would go and do his acoustic thing, and I would bring a resonator guitar and just sit next to him and and jam all night. So I, w- I would say about two years, maybe two and a half years, I played with him. So what do you think you learned from Michael, or what do you think you learned from those two and a half years? Because we'll say that that I think I think it's fair to say that's the first, you know, that's when you started working as a sideman. Yeah, I definitely learned a lot from Michael. Michael kind of the the lessons changed over the years like originally um you know the the first thing i learned was probably how to play rhythm guitar because i really hadn't played rhythm guitar right i guess uh or had the opportunity to really focus on rhythm guitar before that and with him you know the he wanted me to be able to solo and whatever but he he really wanted a strong rhythm guitar player so when I when I first came in, he he didn't like how I played rhythm at all. So he's like, "I want you to play this. I want you to do this." He was very specific about what he wanted, and uh, basically, it changed my whole, you know, I my whole idea of what rhythm guitar was. Um, you know, he he had very specific things that he wanted, and when I first came in, I did not have a good grasp of how to play blues rhythm guitar. So I would say the first thing I learned from him was how to play rhythm and how to, you know, play with a band and, you know, play in the appropriate spots to what your bandmates are all playing. And, you know, he taught me to be mindful of like, if you have a horn player, you know, you want to stay out of this register of the guitar because, you know, that's, it's going to turn to mud. You know, if you have another guitar player who's playing high, you want to play low that kind of stuff. So I would say that's the first thing I learned. Second thing would be business. Um, he was very adamant about, um, bands conducting themselves in a very professional manner most of the time. So I learned a lot about the business side, you know, the, the do's and don'ts, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, that sort of thing. And, uh, 
with Michael, the reason he learned a lot of that stuff was because he did a lot of stuff the wrong way the first time. <laughs> Excuse me. And then, you know, later went back and, and did things the right way, which is kind of how a lot of guys do it, I guess. But, um, but he had a really good grasp of, you know, the business side too. So I guess rhythm guitar would be the big thing. Business would be the secondary thing. Um, and then obviously meeting all these older musicians who were kind of the, you know, the, the guys I looked up to, Michael knew them all and I got to play with them all. And, you know, it just kind of, it was nice to have, you know, a, a, an introduction to that world of those people. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. So, uh, let's see. So then, so then how did you get hooked up with uh, Howard Lutke? Um, well, you told me about him originally. Um, and then I jammed with him at Scott street a couple of times and then just got hooked and started going to his shows, hanging out. Um, he was always really nice and took time to talk to me and we just formed a friendship from there. And then pretty soon they were inviting me to, you know, to play with them and come to their house. And then eventually it ended up, you know, with him teaching me how to play slide. So it, it all pretty much came from just kind of sitting in and jamming on like, I think a Tuesday or a Thursday night at Scott street, basically. So, uh, how, how did he give, tell, tell the story about how he gave you a guitar. Oh, <laughs> um, so I went, went to his house for a lesson, uh, in Eau Claire and, uh, took me for a ride in his Studebaker showed me his his cars all of his you know guitar stuff we sat down we had a lesson and at the end of the lesson uh he pulled out an old resonator guitar a dobro uh, i believe it was a 60s or 70s ish metal body resonator and said you know you can borrow this Just take it home learn on it play it and uh i was kind of like wow well this is crazy this guy's giving me a guitar as a loner to play indefinitely and uh then he told me a story about how somebody puked in it at a party um and then he picks it up and kind of looks inside and goes i think i got it all out um then handed it back to me but yeah basically uh they were at a party some guy looked at his guitar and while he was looking at it just puked right into the sound holes of the guitar so (laughs) i got the vomit guitar yeah, yeah, you got to did, did you give the guitar back? Yeah, yeah. Um what's really funny and ironic about that guitar is one night at Scott Street, um Scott actually got me super super hammered on whiskey and I rolled over out of bed and threw up almost on that guitar again. It almost got thrown up in twice. <laughs> so the um, this the Scott he's referring to is a is a fellow we call Big Scott. Or we used to call Big Scott, so I don't I don't even know where Big Scott is anymore. Have you seen that guy? I haven't seen him in years. Me neither. I don't even know where he is. 
But yes, he got us. He got more than one person liquored up on from time to time. Oh yeah, lots. Yeah. <laughs> was blues an influence on your music before you moved up here? It it was um, actually back when I was a kid, um, when I was a teenager growing up, my best friend's dad um, was really into blues music, and after church sometimes I would go over and hang out with this friend and his dad had one of the biggest, most impressive vinyl collections I've seen to this day, probably. And about 70 or 80% of it was old blues. So we would go over there, hang out and he knew I was a musician and he knew that I played guitar. So he was always like, Hey, have you heard this? Have you heard this? Do you like this? You know, what do you think of this? You got to check this out. And so really the first real blues I ever listened to as a kid, like I can, I can name the albums. You know, I remember them so well. Um, Taj Mahal, natural blues. That was one of them. Um, Janis Joplin, cheap thrills and Johnny winner's first record were some of the first blues albums I ever heard. And, uh, from there he got, you know, got me into, you know, Spirit and John Mayle and the Allman Brothers and a lot of that kind of stuff. But he also had, you know, John Lee Hooker records and Robert Johnson records and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So really, I mean, I would say like probably when I was about 13, um, that's when that whole side was introduced to me. And um, it's it's really been a part of me since then because I've always... I've always liked it, even as a kid. So since, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time together. So the other thing I, I want to talk about a little bit just for fun is tell me a little, tell the people a little bit about the impact of the Neil Young documentary year of the horse. Well, Neil Young is kind of, to me, if you listen to any stoner rock or, um, you know, or any kind of grunge or anything like of that nature. I think that there's a definite tie to Neil Young and the guitar sound that he had pretty much on all of his band, you know, band records. His acoustic stuff obviously is a little cleaner, but the stuff with Crazy Horse, you know, even some of his solo records where he had a band he always had that fuzzed out, overdriven, crazy kind of stoner rock tone. And uh, I I don't know. I've always been drawn to guitar players who don't have pretty pristine process guitar tone. And for me, like if you go back, you know, I mean, there's guys like Link Ray that really, you know, tried to tried to overdrive their guitars and make make them sound fuzzier and more distorted and more angry. Uh, but for me, Neil Young is kind of the point where all of those guys, you know, turned into this, this big ugly monster that was Neil Young's guitar tone. And I don't know, I collect fuzz pedals now. I like have a huge collection of fuzz. Um, but for me, you know, the, everything about Neil Young's tone and that band. And, you know, it just kind of has always spoken to me. So that documentary, like, 
the the live albums that he put out with Crazy Horse. I mean, all that stuff is just it's so dirty. It's so unprocessed and unpolished and it's it's kind of the I don't give a fuck all all around, you know? And I don't know. That 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 may not answer your question, but that documentary and everything about Neil Young just to me is is about rawness of sound. So and for me that's that's like one of my big influences. Right. So you and I think you and I spent a year in all we we probably spent a year watching that documentary kind of over and over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I probably watched it at least four or five times. Yeah. So uh so when you could finally afford a real guitar, when you'd sort of done enough sort of horse trading with, with uh, Dave in, in the guitar shops, what kind, what guitar did you end up on? Um, it's very similar to Neil Young's. It's, uh, it's a reissue of a 54 Black Beauty, P90 pickups, the Bigsby Whammy bar, the whole deal. Pretty much almost exactly like the one that he used with Crazy Horse for years. Yeah, I, I always thought, okay, yep, you're... Because when you you added the whammy to it, right? No, it, it came like that. Oh, it yeah. did, okay. But did you... Did at some point you make a change in the whammy, like went to a, a Bigsby or something like that? No, the the Bigsby is actually what came on it. It's okay. the, the more vintage looking uh, okay. whammy system. But... Yeah, I don't use it that much anymore just because it's such a noisy guitar. Right. That with with the high amounts of fuzz and distortion and all that stuff, it just sound guys hate it. So I yeah. leave it at home and and brings quieter guitars to shows now. Which which is hilarious given the sound of your band that you've brought a quiet guitar. <laughs> Ironically, yes. The uh the the Les Paul, the Black Beauty, when when you're not playing, it hums like crazy. And with the with the Gretsch guitar that I actually use on most of our shows, um, the guitar tone is gnarly as hell. But uh, but the guitar itself, like the electronics, are very quiet. So with the usage of all the all the fuzz in the bass, um, I just you know I I'd rather do without the hum. You know, to me, it's kind of an annoyance to the audience, you know. Yeah, so uh, so what guitar, what guitar are you bringing now, the, the Gretsch? I, for most of the shows, I use a, a Gretsch Billy Bow. It's the Billy Gibbons signature guitar. Um, I'm more of a Les Paul guy, but I like the, I like the Gretsch because it's a little bassier and being in a, a two-piece band... I need all the bass I can get, so I like that one sound-wise a little better for this band. So, what guitars do you have? Do you have in the quiver now? So, how many do you have? Oh, I have. I think I got four right now. I've got a National Resonator, and then I've got. Is that still? Is that the, uh, is that the Resonator that you got when the sort of like flat one or the kind of the darker finish? It's a it's a black yeah um, almost gunmetal yeah. kind of kind of finish the one you've had forever but yeah yeah I've had it for a while um, 
I've got that, then I've got a 56 reissue Les Paul, and then I've got a 54 reissue Black Beauty Les Paul. That's the one we were just talking about. Um, and then I've got the Gretsch Billy Bow. And that's it? And that's pretty much it right now. No acoustic guitar? Uh, well, other than a resonator, which yeah. doesn't really count, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And what amps are you tra- what amps are you traveling with now? I pretty much only travel with orange amps now. I have two dual pairs that are nice and small. They fit in the van nice. Um, they they just travel really well. They're they're the size of a lunchbox basically, and uh, you know I could fit two of them in the van. Nice, have a backup, and uh, I usually use a two twelve orange cab. So how, so uh, let's see what other gear. So then you bring the pedal board. I don't have much on my pedal board anymore. With this band, I I kind of stripped it down to a minimalist approach. Um, basically, on my pedal board now, I just have a a fuzz pedal, a tuner, and then uh, you know power and a reverb pedal. That's pretty much it. Okay, good. So. Uh... So then let's let's talk a little bit about uh how did how did 20 watt come to be? Well, originally it was just supposed to be a joke on the side while we were still playing shows with Mean Tooth Grin and then it kind of got to the point where it was starting to be taken a little more seriously and we decided well we should probably record an album if this is going to be a thing. Um but at the time, we were called the Goddams, and after doing that for a couple of years, we ran into some hang-ups with trademarking the name and some legal issues. So um, at that point, we made the decision to change the band name to 20-Watt Tombstone, and that's pretty much what we've gone as ever since. Now, how many records do you have? Uh, two records. That's what I thought. Wow. Nice. So one of the things that I think is cool is how, uh, or one of the things that I've watched is how you sort of found a na- a community with around you. You know, sort of the, you know, you, you found people in the same musical community, and and I think, in for, as an observer, that sort of seems like it made all of this possible. Like starting oh, to definitely. starting to connect with people outside, like you know, because Me Tooth Grin. In all fairness, the farthest you guys probably got was Detroit, right? Um, pretty much Midwest, yeah, yeah Minnesota, Illinois, um, Indiana. You know, ne- it never went really super far, right? But then, but then, so tell me a little bit about how you found this sort of the the like-minded community of people kind of that are around this musical sound? Well, I mean, I guess I just, it's not so much that I went after people that were really like us as I went after people who were, you know, doing a similar thing. They, they weren't musically maybe like us, but they were, you know, they were touring. You know, those are the kind of people that I tried to befriend and, and uh, you know, network with. Because 
you know, it, it just felt like if this was going to go anywhere, those were the people that I needed to, you know, network with to make contacts for shows outside the state and that sort of thing. So, um, I, I guess what it boils down to is just going out and actively pursuing relationships with people outside your circle. That's, that's kind of still the model that we use. Um, we don't leave shows early. Every show we play doesn't matter what the routing is. If we're at a show and we have eight hours of driving the next day, we will stay till the very end, talk to all the bands network, talk to them about coming up by us, talk to them about next time we come to town, that sort of thing, because that's really what I've found anyway, that is really where we've made the biggest dent business-wise is making those kind of relationships so that the next time we're in those areas, we can call up those bands who are familiar with those areas and say, hey, you know, we want to put a show on. This is your neck of the woods. Let's, let's work together, you know. And we try to reciprocate that when people come up here by us. So I, I guess the short answer to that question would be um, just actively pursuing relationships outside of home, just going after everybody everywhere that's kind of doing the same thing we are as far as touring. Was that your first time touring? I mean, um, outside of, I mean, the the distance, I mean, obviously in the Midwest, as you talked this, about, but. This last tour? Yeah. Um, that was actually our third tour as 20 Watt Tombstone. Oh, good. So, so you guys have, you guys have that circuit down, sort of down pat, I guess, if you will. So, uh. Tell, let's talk a little bit about what it's like to play on the road versus playing at home. What so when you're when you're at home and you play, where where is where's your home venue now? Uh, Pollock Inn is probably home base. It just it's it's always kind of felt like home. We uh, when we first started playing there, we didn't have you know very many people coming to see us. It was pretty you know, pretty slow. And, uh, it just has become such a great place. Cause it's, it's, to me, it's the right kind of people in the right place. You know, some venues you go to, you'll have a packed house, but nobody buys merch. Nobody's really into original music. They're yelling for covers, that sort of thing. And for me, Pollock Inn is, it's always an original music crowd. We go there, we sell a lot of merch, um, people are there to hear our music or to hear original music that they don't know. You, you get that, that person that's really kind of there for all the right reasons. And to me, I'd rather play a room with five people like that, you know, than play a great big room of people who are, you know, not like that, who are yelling for covers, not into buying merch, not into original music. You know, if you have a, a room full of a hundred people like that, it's going to feel empty. You know, if you have five people who are really there for original music, it's, it's going to feel like a hundred. So that's one of the reasons I guess I like Pollock and plus Frank and Ryan have been super supportive. You know, they, they help other bands that are touring that we know we, we call them up and say, Hey, these guys are coming through. Can you help them out? And they're always very eager to help touring bands. So that goes a long way with us too. So, 
so the crowd the crowds at home seem to be you know receptive and, and eager to hear uh, hear what you guys are doing. So tell me about a time when uh, on the road when they weren't eager to hear what you were doing and they they didn't give a hoot about you. Uh, there's been a few of those. <laughs> Um, on the road, it really, it really depends. There, there's some places that we've played where, you know, we're away from home. It's our first time and it's awesome. And then there's other places we play where it's just horrible. Um, I think off the top of my head, the, probably the worst place I can think of is probably Daytona. But, uh, that, that club was empty like there was nobody there um our merch guy at the time used to travel with a freak show and he actually had to go out on a corner and do fire breathing and swallow razor blades and stuff to make tips so we could actually get to the next show um because there was nobody there (laughs) so that that would probably be the worst one um but there's been a few where it's like you know you show up on a tuesday night in whatever town and you're playing for the door. Nobody shows up. Um, it's just hard to to give a hundred percent, you know, to an empty room on a weeknight, you know, when you're broke and you're hungry and all that stuff. But um, but you know, it's part of the game too. For every bad night, there's usually a good night. So usually it balances out. But uh, but yeah, there's definitely. I mean, there's always a few nights on tour where you just hate yourself at the end of the night and don't even want to talk about the show. <laughs> okay. That, that went, that went a little bit dark there towards the end, Tom. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> Holy shit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, that is what it is, man. You know, I mean, I'd be lying when... if I said at the end of the night, I gave myself a pep talk and was like, you know, this isn't so bad. I mean, there's nights where you just go back to the motel room or sleep in the van and you just like, you don't even look at each other. You just go, yep. We, we both know tonight's stunk. Let's just go to bed. You know? Okay. All right. Okay. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to laugh at my friend, but I was just waiting for you to go. And then you think of yourself like a $2 whore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, close. Yeah. He broke from them. And then he broke from himself. I'd never seen a man so broken up and ripped apart. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so just just for me, let's talk about the van a little bit because the van is new. Okay. So so before, before this van, hold on, no. On the first tour, what did you drive? The, for, the first tour, uh, we had a Chevy Uplander. Um, the LS version, which is the longer, more extended version of the Uplander. It's still a minivan, um, though, right? It's essentially a minivan. It's a minivan that looks like an SUV, basically, okay. but got good gas mileage. It had lots of room. It it got the job done. So on, on your on your first tour, it was you, Mitch, and who else? Uh, it was me, Mitchell, and uh, our merch guy at the time, Marcus Brooks. So are we actually trying to call him Mitchell now? I always call him Mitchell. It's it's like having a kid, man. Okay. You know. <laughs> okay. So on the second tour you went with 
On the second tour, we brought uh, our buddy Rooster. He actually has done, you know, stuff with the Ditch Runners and some other bands. And uh, super awesome guy has, you know, toured all over the, the country, done sound for a bunch of really cool bands. Like, definitely, definitely knows his shit. Um, he, he's an ex-military guy, though, so he's very about scheduling and, you know, routing and having everything worked out super early. Didn't work so well with Mitchell. Mitchell likes to sleep in in the morning, and Rooster would get us up super, super early, you know, be like, let's hit the road. Didn't go over with Mitchell quite so good. <laughs> and then, and so he, what, what kind of vehicle did, did Rooster have? Same thing we have now, uh, 40 Conaline diesel, and, E350. And how long is your van? What's that? How, how many people fit in your van? Um, you can fit, I don't know, seated with seat belts. We can fit about. We can probably fit five seated in our van. Um, okay, but but just so we're clear, it's a it's a fifteen person van, right? Um, it's not the fifteen person okay. version. It's just a it's just a hair shorter. Um, but the seats are all taken out in the back too. So basically, we have the two captains' chairs up front, one bench behind that, and then the rest of it's all open. And so. So you guys could essentially put a bed back there, right? Yeah, eventually that's that's the plan. We're trying to figure out how exactly we're going to do it still. We want to make it so that it can come out easily if we want it to. So a little bit of planning. Sure. So uh what are, what are the things you, what are the expenses for on the road? What are what are your sort of what what costs you money on the road? Um well, gas is obviously the big one. Um, we don't really stay in motels. We try to find people to crash with. Um, or if we absolutely have to, we'll sleep in the van. Um, but, yeah, gas is the big one. Food, I, I give the guys a per diem every day. Everybody gets 10 bucks a day. Um, and let's face it, three adult men should be able to eat on 10 bucks a day. I mean, if you, if you, if you think it out and you plan it well, totally easy to do um eating in restaurants three meals a day obviously is not cost effective um but what we try to do is go to the grocery store before we leave get food you know plan ahead that sort of thing um so gas food um you know and then you've got stuff like oil changes you got to make sure that if you're out long enough that you you know get your oil changes when you need to because the vehicle is the vehicle is home you know, and if anything happens to that, you're done. So really the, the maintenance of the vehicle, that's a big one. You can't let any of that stuff go. Um, really other than that, um, you know, stuff, equipment, stuff, guitar strings, um, drumsticks, if you need them, that sort of thing. So have you, I guess I, I've never asked you this as, as you travel, do you do you make contact with guitar shops around around the country? Like, is that something you do? Sometimes um, we actually we have a buddy that works for Groon Guitars in Nashville, and we we usually stay with him when we're in Nashville. But uh, we always try to visit the guitar shop too, and just kind of walk through because it's it's pretty amazing. It's kind of like Dave's in Lacrosse. 
Um, it's really big. There's a big floor full of vintage stuff. It's just cool to see, you know. So we try to go there and say hi to everybody. Um, there's a couple other guitar shops that we try to stop in once in a while. Um, unfortunately, we have to shop at Guitar Center every once in a while because, you know, they're yeah. located in just about every town. Yeah. But uh, we prefer the the locally owned guitar shops and drum shops. So so then I guess uh, with some of the other stuff that I, I like talking about with you is, so on this last tour, you seem to, to eat out on this last tour a little bit more often than normally, right? This last tour, we didn't. This last tour, we we have our regular things that we have to do. Right. So that's that's um, what I. So when you tra- when you travel, when you do this this horseshoe, what are some of the the have to places that you have to eat at? Okay. Well, first of all, in South Carolina, in Greenville, South Carolina, there is a Vietnamese restaurant that I will not leave town before I have eaten at. It is the business. It is so good. Um, the Their menu is like a, a Trapper Keeper binder, like about two inches thick. It's ridiculous. Um, but it's just called Saigon Fast Food. Really kind of generic-looking place, not fancy, not big on a- atmosphere. Great food, though. Um, but that's that's one of the things. The big thing with us is, really good places that are really cheap. Those are the places that we remember, we write down, because um, obviously we're trying to stay on a budget to a degree, but certain places, you know, you just got to fit them in the schedule. Um, so that would be the big one for me. The other one um, is when you're in Nashville, you got to get Nashville hot chicken. I mean, if if you haven't ever done that, it is a religious experience. Okay, so I, I've done that, but I'm going to bet that Eric hasn't had Nashville hot chicken. I have not. Okay, so I've been to Nashville. So. Good. So, so I'm going to let you tell him what it is. Well, okay. There's there's several places that do Nashville hot chicken. Um, they're all usually pretty good. The one that we love is called Bolton's, and like. Seriously, the best chicken I've ever had in my life. Like, it is absolutely ridiculous. Once again, not big on atmosphere, small little divey place. Um, but they were on a bunch of stuff on the, the Food Channel. Um, they were in a Taylor Swift video or something. Tom Jordan watching a Taylor Swift video. Now, there's something to Yeah. There's something. Well, I, I'll tell you what. I only watched it because I heard that the chicken place was in the video. <laughs> but, Kentucky Fried. Uh, but Doesn't Bolton, Kentucky Fried sell some Nashville chicken? Yeah, but it's not commercials. The well, I'm sure it's not. But it's it's basically <laughs> it's a dry rub. That it, it's not a hot sauce. It's a dry rub that they put on the chicken. It's it's to die for. It's yeah. But those are the two big ones for me. Um, there's a place that books us down south, L.O. Creek. Um, they're in Georgia, Waycross, Georgia. Um, everything they have is awesome. They're, the, all the food they serve is top shelf. But, um, but yeah, those two, those two are the big ones, the, the Thai place in South Carolina and then Nashville Hot Chicken. Those are, those are regulars. And then, of course, 
we love Waffle House because every musician loves Waffle House because you can go in there and get breakfast for three dollars. So, <laughs> so so talk talk about Cobbler. Um, yeah, I was told I had to have Cobbler down there because it's different than up here. And I didn't really realize what that meant until I actually had it. But up here, it's kind of, you know, crust crumbled on top kind of thing, kind of like pie. Down there, it's basically soup. It's like a bowl of soupy water. Uh, we had peach, so there was pieces, pieces of peach in it. And then, like, kind of chunks of dough or bread in it. Very different from what I've had up here. That was, was it good? Called it doesn't sound good. It, it was really good. It was, it was really good, but it was just very different. So, Did, did you drink it? Uh, I did not, but there were people in there that were drinking, like, from their bowls after they apparently wanted to get every last drop. So. <laughs> yeah. So... So do you think that that uh, the experience the playing in twenty watt would be the same if you didn't travel? No, not at all. Um, I think I think it's had a huge influence on the music. It's had an influence on us and our work ethic. I, I think it's really kind of improved us pretty much across the board. I, I definitely know that it's made the music stronger, and it's definitely given us the drive to be more creative and work harder so do you guys do you consider yourself a road band or a home band we're definitely a road band we even when we're home we try to not just play home you know i mean we we've never really been satisfied to do that if we play home you know a couple of times inside a three month period, it almost feels like too much to us. You know, we always feel like we need to be moving around, you know? Yeah. So, so that's it. So Eric, do you got anything? I was on mute. Sorry. No, uh, I'm, I'm just, I forget this is our podcast. I'm sorry. Right. Getting um, wrapped into listening to a musician talk, which is fascinating to me. So, but no, I don't have anything else to add. So, so right what, now, well, actually, oh, boy, Tom, what influences you today? What influences your music outside of being on the road? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. A little bit of everything. Um, funny stuff influences me. You know, serious stuff influences me. Um, with this band, I like to keep the premise kind of light, like the, the material sometimes can be kind of, kind of dark, but I always like to kind of bring it back to a kind of the jokey side. You know, I, I never want this band to be so serious that you're listening to a song and, and be like, Oh, some really deep stuff. It's going to make me cry or, you know, make you walk around feeling shitty. You know, it's, this band started as kind of a joke to be something fun and I, I try to keep it that way. So like, we're very influenced by funny, weird stuff that other bands probably aren't. You know, like with our music videos, we try to make those funny rather than, you know, have a serious, you know, three and a half minute video of us playing music. Cause I don't think that's really that interesting to people. I think people identify more 
especially with visual things, if it's A, entertaining, and B, if it's funny, it it feels like less of a commitment, I guess, you know? I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. And I think that's that's one of the reasons our music video has worked so well, is it's not a big thinking thing. It's something you can sit, you can look at, you can laugh at, and you can watch it over and over and over and over again, and it's not it's not overwhelming, you know? And, and this just just to brag a little bit, the star of that music video is who? <laughs> Your mom. That's right, my mom. <laughs> my mom is is the creepy old lady in the music video. Yes. <laughs> and she she can't she can't stop bragging about it. She she's like, when is Tom going to call? I want to make the next video. And I'm like, all right, we'll, we're working on it. Right, we'll, we're working on it, Ma. Don't worry, he's working on it. Don't worry. So. All right, so uh, funny. So I'm 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 grateful you did that. So one of the things that we do at the end of the podcast is we do three endorsements, sort of three things that we're really, you know, kind of into or digging the week of the week that we record the podcast. So, uh, but usually we we fail miserably to to kind of keep track of that and actually get that done. Eric, did did we have any this week? I did. Okay, good. good. I, don't know, I don't know what you got. I, I'm good. I got I got three, but I'm, I'm going to Trello now to look them up. So, all right, Eric, hit me with your first one. Uh, well, I'm going to just shout out to the Chromebook that I bought this week. So I uh, needed something portable. So portable and cheap to do some continuing studying as I change careers. So... And this thing is just super wait, simple to wait, use. Wait, 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 what? Changing careers? Well, yeah, I mean, I, well, like three years ago. Oh, okay. I'm like, are we doing that again now? No, 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 no. No, now I'm just trying to learn more about the career that I moved into. Oh, okay. So, um, but yeah, plus it beat Apple in sales for the first time this yeah. year, which Isn't is kind it? of amazing. Tom, have you seen these things, these Chromebooks? Yeah, they're pretty awesome. Yeah. So okay. So what? So then, this is, let's get back to Tom a little bit. So what? What electronics do you take on the road? I usually travel with um, a tablet, a laptop, and my phone, and that's pretty much it. Are um, they all the for laptop personal doesn't use? Get a lot of you, use. Are they I all use them all for use? business. Do you? Um, the the laptop I I brought with this last tour just because. There were a couple of instances on the last two tours where I needed to have access to, you know, photo design stuff, um, and I didn't have, you know, Illustrator and Photoshop and, you know, those programs. I didn't have access to them on the road. So there was there was a few instances where I needed to make a poster or I needed to make some kind of banner for our site or you know or for something you know i needed to have that so i brought it with this time and sure enough we we're in florida and one of the venues called me up and said hey i need a poster and i need it right now so when we got to the to the motel pulled up my laptop pulled up illustrator and photoshop made a poster made the guy happy and if i hadn't had my laptop with i wouldn't have been able to do that so, so it's kind of nice to have it for that so what kind of laptop are you rocking these days uh, it is a pile of garbage, but <laughs> it's uh, it's a really really old Asus piece of junk. But it's got my Adobe programs on it, so 
It's got to be fun to try to run those programs on an old machine. What's that? I said that's got to be fun to try to run those old, those new programs on an old machine. Since they're such as long as I'm not doing anything else, like too heavy, it it works okay. I've I have CS4 on that thing, and uh, it works, but there's there's definitely some slowdown if I have too much stuff going on. Right. So so what kind of tablet do you have? Uh, it's a Samsung. I think it's a Galaxy Two, something okay. like that. And then uh, it's a bit of an older one. And then what kind of phone? Because I think I think this is I know the answer to this question, and I think this is cool because he's the only one I know. It's a blue BLU. Um, it's a cheaper cheaper import phone, but um, it's got super super long battery life, so I love it. Like I can go two days with using my phone pretty much for email and all the other stuff nonstop and not have to charge it, which I've never had a phone that goes that long before. So for that kind of stuff, it's really nice. So it, but it's an Android phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's Android. Okay. So, uh, yeah, good. So, uh, one of the, I'm going to take, uh, my endorsement and I'm going to endorse, uh, this band, uh, did I endorse swimmers last time? I think yes. I, might, I did. Okay. Well then, then I'm looking at an old list of endorsements and apparently I didn't <laughs> do anything. So, so we'll skip me and, uh, Tom, Tom, do you have, did you happen to put together anything you wanted to endorse? Um, you know, <laughs> when we were on tour this last time, Mitchell and I listened to a lot of, uh, the new Sturgill Simpson record. Okay. So I, I would say that probably gets mine. I am blown away by that record. I think the concept is cool. I think musically it's probably one of the best country records I've ever heard. So that would, that would be mine, I guess. Eric, your next one. Yeah, I'm just writing that down. Hold on. Okay. Uh, I, I was uh, mowing the lawn this weekend and bully came on. I might have endorsed Bully before, but I needed to endorse Bully again. Bully's a band out of Nashville, and they're just this screaming alt-rock band, rock band fronted by a a woman, which doesn't really matter, but they're just a killer group, and it was good to hear them again. And it it came up sort of like on the road, or on on the iPod? Yeah. Cool. Good. And then the other endorsement I had was uh, Chance the Rapper's new record, Coloring uh, Book. Yeah, that's really good. You, yeah, it is. You put that up on Trello, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to check that out. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the summer of hip-hop, I think. I think I'm going to sort of dive back in and, and listen to more hip-hop. I watched uh, this – oh, yeah, I watched this documentary about Stretch and Bobito, these two guys who had a radio show in New York City sort of during the glory days of hip-hop, like from the – from like 1981 until like 1999 on a college radio station. And for a while they were the biggest radio show. They were the biggest hip hop radio show. Like they made Jay-Z wait for an hour in the lobby, you know, and it's, it's this, it's this really cool. (laughs) Yeah. If you get a chance, it's on, it's on HBO or it's on Netflix. It's uh, just really just search for stretch and Bobito. And it's this white guy stretch and this, uh, 
Puerto Rican dude Bobito, and it's just there. It's amazing to see, uh, like they spend a lot of time talking to Fat Joe, and you know, sort of the um, there there was uh, a, the this infamous DMX rap battle section was on there, and there's one dude who's got a tape of it, and it's it's a really cool thing for somebody who really liked that golden era of hip hop. It's a really cool thing. And the other thing that I really liked is they shit hard on sort of the Puff Daddy, whatever it was at like 1996 to 1998 era of hip-hop. They're like, that shit killed hip-hop forever. So, yeah. Stretch and Bobito. I really like that thing. So um, There's a lot of hip-hop documentaries on Netflix right now. Are there? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that's really it. So, uh, Tom, if people wanted to get a hold of you or find you on social media, how could they do that? Probably the easiest way is to go to our website, which has links to everything on it, and that is www.20wattombstone.com. And that's T20 is in 2-0. Yeah, the number 20wattombstone.com, all one word. Um, that has links to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, email direct to, to, to us. Um, pretty much everything's on there. So Good. it's kind of one stop for everything. Cool. And do you know how do they get in touch with us? If so they, uh... you, you find us on, really just find us on Twitter. And it's up to you to find us on Twitter. I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused <laughs> myself as to, to where the R and the U are. I think it's here, are you, Wasa, or here you are i don't really i've confused myself on that so but you can also find us on any of your favorite podcast apps that's right we are everywhere now so you should really take some time go to itunes comment even if it's a bad comment you know we and any sort of comment <laughs> traffic helps us out so all right and Thanks, that's, tom. that's it we're done thank you tom thank you for having me They were going to make me a major for this. And I wasn't even in their fucking army anymore. Everybody wanted me to do it. Him most of all. I felt like he was up there, waiting for me to take the pain away. He just wanted to go out like a soldier, standing up. Not like some poor, wasted, rag-ass renegade. Even the jungle wanted him dead. And that's who he really took his orders from anyway. Love!